Chapter Four of There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. There's Laughter in the Air. Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows by Jack Gaber and Dave Stanley Gaber. Chapter 4 Bergen and McCarthy. Alter Ego. Charlie McCarthy is not one to toss praise around like a schoolboy distributing handbills. So when he says that Edgar Bergen is a fairly nice guy, you can take it without the customary grain of salt. In fact, as a disinterested party, you should add a little sugar to achieve the proper evaluation. Yes, I suppose Bergen, in his way, is as nice a chap as you'd want to meet, Charlie says. Of course, if you don't want to meet a nice chap, there's always Bergen. Charlie is given to the Southpaw compliments, not because he actually has any feeling against Bergen, but because he thinks someone ought to offset the general public approval to a certain degree, lest Bergen get the idea that he should have top billing as well as the lion's share of the money. Charlie says he saw the lion get the short end of that deal, and he doesn't want some of the same. After all, I'm nobody's dummy, he adds. Bergen does not resent Charlie's referring to him as nobody, if it keeps his wooden friend happy. It is Charlie's independence and all-round master-of-my-fate attitude that has made him a unique alumnus of a lumberyard, and Bergen would be the last one to do anything that would change his outlook on life. Besides, Charlie did know him when he was a nobody, not too many years ago. That was when Bergen and Charlie were knocking around in vaudeville and the nightclubs for ten years, a good standard ventriloquist act, but nothing to make an income tax collector lick his chops. From an engagement in the Chaperie Club in Chicago, they came to New York in the fall of 1936 for what Bergen considered his finest break. He didn't know the half of it. An engagement in the Rainbow Room, the city's smartest nightclub, up near the stars in the Rockefeller's Radio City. He was signed for four weeks. He stayed eight. He entertained at one of those fabulous parties given by professional party-thrower Elsa Maxwell, and attracted the attention of a man connected with the Rudy Valley radio program. The result was a guest performance on The Valley Show, December 1936, and immediate interest in him as a radio entertainer, the first ventriloquist ever to score in this medium. After a few months, it was the big time for Bergen and Charlie. Years after, they'd been on the air selling Chase and Sanborn coffee, always at or near the top in the polls that estimate radio popularity. Occasionally they have made a motion picture for big money, although it is understandable that this cannot be done too often because of the difficulty in getting a story that will be just right for their particular talents. The tax records show that Standard Brands, his sponsors, paid Bergen $282,000 in 1941. Edgar John Bergen is the baptismal name of Charlie's master. He was born in Chicago on February 16, 1903. 
His boyhood there, in Decatur, Illinois, and back in Chicago again, was uneventful enough, but he did have a talent for mimicking people, and a flair for magic and sketching that were straws in the wind of the future. As he tells the story, his first experience with a voice trick was when he was watching his mother work in the kitchen of their Decatur home one day. Probably, out of a mixture of boredom and devilment, he rapped on the bottom of his chair and said, way down in his throat, "'Hello, hello in there!' His mother went to see who was at the door. He fooled her again, and then confessed he was the culprit. After that, young Eddie began to practice so-called voice-throwing. Even now he says he doesn't know whether the voice actually can be thrown. He tried it out on his friends, and gradually became proficient at speaking without moving his lips, and at those little deceptive actions that make a person think a voice is coming from a source other than its actual one. More than once he answered present for an absent or late classmate when the teacher called the roll. In high school in Chicago he came to be in demand for amateur entertainments, and from that it was just a step to being able to demand small fees for working at parties, picnics, and the like. In 1921, in his last year of high school, Bergen spent the best thirty-five dollars of his life. He got Charlie. A fellow named Theodore Mack carved the now-famous head, following Bergen's sketch of the features of a brash newsboy of his acquaintance who operated near Lakeview High School. The boy's first name was Charlie. Bergen named the dummy after the newsboy and Mack, in a manner of speaking. Charlie McCarthy started life as a fresh kid in urchin get-up, much like the newsboy, which wasn't anything particularly new. Charlie went to college with Bergen, who matriculated at Northwestern University with the idea of becoming a physician. His ventriloquism paid the freight. There were a lot of small theaters around Chicago where he could pick up a few dollars in odd engagements, and during summer vacations between 1922 and 1925 he spent part of the time touring a Chautauqua circuit, doing a bit of magic along with his ventriloquism. Bergen remembers his first theater job well. It was on a Saturday in a suburban theater, and the contract price was three dollars for five shows, he recalls. When the manager paid me off about midnight, he said I'd been a tremendous hit, and that he was going to give me something extra. He did, a quarter out of his own pocket. And that's the only time anyone in show business has ever paid me more than I contracted for. Eddie, who had given up his medical aspirations in favor of the school of speech, dropped out of college after a couple of years for a season of vaudeville work, and then, finally, got his degree by going to summer sessions. Out in the world for keeps, he and Charlie gradually worked their way up to what was left of vaudeville, acquiring polish and larger paychecks along with the experience. Charlie ceased to be an urchin, and eventually became a bemonocled, top-hatted, white-tied man-about-town, a sartorial counterpart of Bergen. But, of course, what gave the act its spark was Bergen's ability to think up fresh ideas, to create new lines and situations for the act. It was this that made it possible for him to keep rising and to be prepared when the big chance came in radio. But before that happened, Bergen and Charlie had been up and down and across the land, 
and had visited such foreign parts as Sweden, Russia, Iceland, England, and various parts of South America. Bergen felt especially at home in Sweden because he is of Swedish descent and can handle the lingo like a native. In fact, he was good enough at it to play in Rolf's Review in Stockholm. Years later, on July 1, 1944 to be exact, Bergen was awarded the Order of Vasa, first class, by King Gustav V of Sweden. This is a decoration given to people living outside Sweden who have contributed to bettering Swedish-American relations. In La Quara, Venezuela, Bergen played for a leper colony. That was the most awesome experience I've ever had, he says. They didn't laugh, but those people got me. I gave more than in any performance I've ever put on. I got only a few faint smiles in return, and some of them thanked me when I had finished. But the American public found a new depth to its laughter when Bergen and Charlie became radio big-timers on Sunday nights. There were, and are people, who would cut your throat if you tried to interfere with their session with McCarthy, which is the way most addicts think of the program. For it is a fact that the dummy is more real to the public than its master. Did you hear what McCarthy said to? Is a common greeting among the faithful holding post-mortems on Monday mornings. They all know Bergen is really the guy, but McCarthy is the one they talk about. And that is the way it is meant to be. Bergen, purposely, is little more than a straight man. Charlie gets the gags, or if Bergen or a guest star gets a gag as Lanyap, then Charlie has one that tops it. Charlie's forte is being insulting in a rather polite and well-mannered way, although he can and does let go with both barrels when he ties up with an outspoken adversary such as W. C. Fields. Charlie loves Bill Fields, is the way Bergen puts it. Charlie treats Bergen with a rather fond contempt, and up to a certain point achieves a sort of world-weary patience with his master's opinions and suggestions. Beyond that, Bergen can expect no favors, and he knows better than to do so. Although not hipped on the subject to the extent that some fictional ventriloquists have been portrayed as being, Bergen regards McCarthy as a real person, and discusses him as such. It is difficult to keep the little wooden head out of any conversation with Bergen, probably because others like to talk about him even more than does Bergen, and once he creeps in, you're as apt to get McCarthy's opinions or feelings about such-and-such such as you are to get Bergen's. Charlie weighs about forty pounds, and travels in a special hand-grip. He has a tailored wardrobe that would make an Esquire reader envious. It includes overcoats, bathrobes, and sports clothes in addition to ordinary suits and evening dress. He wears size four clothes, two AAA shoes, and a three-and-three-eighths hat. He has always had the same head, but the other parts have had to be replaced from time to time. Charlie's face gets a careful paint job whenever it begins to show a little wear. He is insured for three thousand dollars, and, press agent stunt or not, it is a fact that Bergen, in 1937, drew up a will leaving McCarthy ten thousand dollars. It is a rather remarkable document, and was published in the New York Law Journal. 
The money is to keep Charlie alive after Bergen passes on. The will reads in part, I, Edgar John Bergen, give and bequeath to the Actors' Fund of America the sum of ten thousand dollars to be held as a separate fund, to be known forever as the Charlie McCarthy Fund. It is my sincere wish, and I request, that said fund be managed, invested, and reinvested, and the entire income be used in each year by the said Actors' Fund of America, to give gratuitous and charitable performances of ventriloquism at orphanages, welfare homes, homes for crippled children, and other such similar institutes for destitute, unfortunate, and handicapped children as said Actors' Fund of America may designate. Especially I make this provision for sentimental reasons, which to me are vital due to the association with Charlie McCarthy, the dummy, who has been my constant companion, and who has taken on the character of a real person, and from whom I have never been separated for even a day. It is my request and earnest desire that the Actors' Fund of America shall forever care for and keep Charlie McCarthy in good and serviceable condition and repair, and that the ventriloquist so selected to give such gratuitous performances shall always use Charlie McCarthy when giving such gratuitous performances. There was one occasion when Bergen was not quite sure for a few hours whether Charlie would be around to claim the legacy. That was the night of March 14, 15, 1939, when Bergen was in New York for a visit, and of course had Charlie along in his special case. They were stopping at the Waldorf Astoria, where they always stay when in the city. Bergen went out for the evening, leaving the encased Charlie in a closed closet. When he returned to the hotel about 1.30 a.m., he got a couple of telephone calls from newspapers wanting to know if there was any truth in the rumor that Charlie had been kidnapped. Ridiculous, of course, Bergen said. But after the second call, he looked in the closet. No Charlie. Police teletypes carried the news to eight states in the east. Detectives went to work on the case. The FBI was notified. Then Charlie turned up suddenly at 11.30 a.m., safe and sound in the custody of the amusement editor of an afternoon newspaper who had engineered the disappearance as a practical joke on Bergen. The editor had been courting McCarthy in his case around the nightclubs all evening. Bergen refused to prosecute, considering the gag a good one and no harm done. The police were less jovial, but wound up by accepting the situation with grace, mostly bad. The editor had secured the dummy by sending a page-boy from a nearby hotel to the Waldorf to pick up the case and deliver it to Bergen. When the page came out of the Waldorf with the case, two men maneuvered him into a taxicab. The page, bound and gagged in a rather genteel way, was released at a midtown West Side Street corner shortly afterwards. Bergen is so identified with McCarthy that it would be a major entertainment catastrophe if anything fatal actually did happen to the dummy, but of course there are other dummies in the ventriloquist's life. One bears the name of Mortimer Snurd, and the other is Miss Effie Clinker. Mortimer entered the picture some seven years ago to provide an occasional brief change of pace. There never was any question of his replacing Charlie. 
Mart is a country bumpkin, and is described by Bergen as slow and stupid. He is limited to about two minutes at a time, Bergen explains, because things have to be repeated to him before he catches on, and that sort of thing can quickly become a bore if there is too much of it. Charlie at one time may have been a bit jealous of Mortimer, in fact I'm sure he was, but he quickly got over it. He saw Mart for exactly what he is, someone to be tolerated and, to an extent, pitied. Charlie has told me more than once that Mart should be sent to a home for backward boys. But the lady is something else again, and she is a lady, make no mistake about that. Bergen began working on the project early in 1944. First there was the problem of getting the right voice. Bergen experimented, made recordings, and achieved something he felt was about right. Actually, he did not start from scratch at developing a voice for a female character, because for a long time he had been entertaining studio audiences and other gatherings with a character he calls Ophelia. This girl is not a dummy, but Bergen makes a head for her with his fist and a bit of makeup. He couldn't use the exact voice as used for Ophelia, because that was the voice of a girl. He wanted the voice of an older woman. You can get more character into it. Once the voice was set, Bergen hired six cartoonists from Hollywood Studios to come in and listen to the recordings, and then sent them back to their workshops to turn out sketches of their conceptions of the character. Bergen bought three or four sketches at twenty dollars apiece from each artist, juggled them around a bit, and finally arrived at a sort of composite that seemed to be just right. A plaster model was made, and then the final and most difficult job, the carving, was entrusted to a man who had a war job as a pattern-maker at Douglas Aircraft. A machinist turned out the working mouth-parts. Studio experts applied the coloring and clothing. The dummy was not quite done when Bergen came to New York in midsummer 1944, but it arrived by Air Express a few days later. He got his first look at the completed job when he took the dummy out of its special case in his Waldorf suite. He looked at it with growing appreciation for a minute, and then breathed, Isn't she a love? She was. Effie is forty inches tall, and has a thirteen-inch bust. Her chin recedes slightly, and her prominent nose tilts upward. She has somewhat the appearance of Sneezy of Walt Disney's Seven Dwarves. Her eyes bug with brightness, and her mouth is in a perpetual upsweep. She wears her dark hair in a bun. In her original get-up she wore a black flower-pot hat, an old-style orchid-colored shirtwaist, a long black skirt, tan shoes topped by gray spats, red, white, and blue striped hose, and pince-nez. The very afternoon he received her, Bergen went shopping in jewelry stores and came back triumphantly with one of those old-fashioned ladies' watches that pin on the shirtwaist. At the time Effie was finished she didn't have a name. Bergen fans who knew about her impending arrival had been deluging him with suggestions for weeks, and several thousand of these were received before it was decided to call her Effie Clinker. No one suggested this complete name, but there had been several Effie and several Clinker suggestions in other combinations. War bond prizes were sent to all who had suggested either name. If anyone ever kicks about unauthorized use of the name, 
Bergen can always point out that he got the okay from one of his writers whose name is Clinker. There is a resident of Boston who has been writing Bergen letters for years, threatening dire consequences if he does not forthwith alter the name of Charlie McCarthy. It seems that his wife objects to it. She was a McCarthy, and she has an uncle named Charlie. The Bergen thought processes that go into making a human being out of a block of wood are best demonstrated by some of his thinking out loud about Effie. Effie is a bachelor girl who is pushing forty, and just between us, I think she's made it. She is a small-town woman, probably from New England. Essentially she is a good woman, very understanding and very busy. She will gossip a bit, of course. Effie is a member of women's clubs, and she sews, tats, quilts, and cooks. She is a church worker, but she is not a blue-nose. I imagine that from time to time she will fancy a bit of port. Above all else she has good sense and humor. She reads the editorials and the book reviews. Effie is not rich, but she does not have to worry about money. A little income. I believe there was that well-to-do bachelor uncle who left his money to the girl in the family who never married. That would be Effie. She has nothing against marriage, understand. She is not a congenital old maid. It's just that she's never yet met the man who quite meets her specifications. But she hasn't given up looking. As a matter of fact, on that first plane trip of hers to the east, she warmed up considerably to the pilot. She found out later that he was married. There can be no question of any romance between Effie and Charlie or Mortimer. She is much too old for them. As a matter of fact, I expect Charlie will not miss the chance to kid Bergen about her a bit. Bergen's about the right age and available. However, early in 1945, Bergen, who had never married, became engaged. He is just slightly above middle height, has a good Scandinavian face and coloring, including blonde hair that has been engaged in a losing rearguard action for a decade. He is as mild-spoken a man as you'll meet, and a walking definition of the word pleasant. In private conversation he is a spinner of gentle, amusing yarns. Naturally, he is a sentimentalist. On that New York trip in the summer of 1944, one of the first things he wanted to do was visit the Rainbow Room, not only because it was the place he really started, but also because he just naturally loved the atmosphere of the place. The room has not been open as a supper club since the United States got into the war, but the layout is the same, and it is used occasionally for large private parties. Bergen went up to the room and just sat around for a while, not saying much. The memories were still there, even if the spirit had gone for the duration. As a writer, Bergen is a painstaking workman. He toils week-long on each radio script. He has writer assistants who are primarily gag men, but he is not beholden to them as much as are some radio comedians. Once a script is prepared, he constantly makes revisions, seeking just the right word here, the proper inflection there. While he seems to be a careless, even diffident person in the broadcasting studio, he is far from that. His think-box is working overtime and privately he worries about whether things are going to be all right. He sleeps lightly, and if he wakes with a good idea, he will get up in the middle of the night to work on a script. 
Charlie, of course, sleeps like a log. End of chapter 4 Bergen and McCarthy